0: Of Monsters in Crime. uh, The podcast that you like. The one you told your mom about, even though you didn't think she'd be open to it. But surprise! She liked it first, actually. Uh, She doesn't like the cursing so much. No moms do. But then they listen to it and they go, This reminds me of my younger days and they light up a Salem cigarette and then all of the sudden it's, honey, go get the gin. I'm going to tell you about my younger days and they start cursing. Have you ever heard the word fuck come from your mom's mouth? I'm sure you all have, but it's kind of creepy, isn't it? Like, you know, we all say it, but when it's your mom, it's just different. But it's one of my favorite words. And if you've listened to me in this podcast before, or if you know me, uh, you know that I say it all the time. I cannot help it. It was probably both of my kids' first word. I'm kidding. It wasn't. But, uh, yeah, I do curse often. Uh, anyways moving on Um, I have had a sad couple of weeks really sad Um, one of the things that I will talk about is Libby my kitty Um, I had to put her to sleep on Tuesday so just a couple days ago Um, she almost made it to 18 years old. She'd be 18 on the 1st of October, so just a couple weeks away. Um, she got, I don't know, just one day, she, it wasn't just one day, it was, it was Tuesday, it was this week. Tuesday, I came home, and she had had, like, this eye- shit kind of goopiness in her eye for like a day or two. But when I came home on Tuesday, she, her eye was completely like crusted shut. And so I got a, a warm rag and I cleaned her eye out and she got up to like move away from me because I was obviously annoying the shit out of her. And she could not walk like she was wobbly and she just she she was moving like two cushions over on the couch and she could barely do that and I was like what the fuck so that day I had just bought some uh wet food for her because um I I think her old age she was having trouble maybe eating dry food so I thought I would give her some wet food because obviously I didn't want her to starve. I wanted her to be hydrated and all that. Um, I opened a can of food and I went, I brought it over to the couch where she was laying and she would not touch it, which was weird because she in the past few weeks or months, even she had been like, jumping up on the counter, and anytime I was in the kitchen cooking, or not even cooking, just like pouring myself a glass of water, she would be right there in my face on the counter, so in anything I gave her, she would basically eat, Um, but she was not interested in this at all and I knew right then that something was seriously seriously wrong and um, so I went to call some vets and I wanted to get her in I wanted to get her checked out I was hoping that maybe just this eye infection that she had was just causing her to be lethargic and that we could get her on some like antibiotics or something and she would like be okay uh, but of course, none of the vets had any openings, so I called the emergency animal hospital. Uh, I told them I was coming with her, and then I went to I went out to the living room, and uh, I went to I wanted to just snuggle her for a little bit because I knew that something was wrong with her. I knew she wasn't feeling well, and I honestly kind of thought that it was maybe. Like that was her last day. Um so I went to snuggle with her and she was not on the couch anymore, and I'm like, what the fuck? And when I walked out there, I heard this um really uh like bad or it it was it was a meow, but it was like a like, I'm in distress, kind of, meow. um, And it sounded like it was coming from behind the couch. So, I was like, what the fuck? Please do not tell me that she fell off the couch. I looked behind the couch, and she... So, she liked to sit on the back of the couch cushion. uh, And apparently, she was walking over there to lay in her spot. And she fell off the couch and fell behind it and I uh I looked behind there and her claw was like stuck in the back of the couch so she was just kind of hanging there and I don't know how long she was hanging there for I mean it wasn't longer than 10 minutes but hopefully it wasn't that long hopefully it was just like a minute or two I I really don't know um but she was just hanging there by one of her claws So I unhooked her, and um, she just kind of flopped over and laid on the floor, and she wouldn't move. Like, I was calling her, I was like, come here, Libby, like, you know, walk out from behind the couch, and she wouldn't move. So I had to pull the couch out and pick her up, and I just held her, and I knew that something was really really wrong and um, so I brought her to the emergency hospital uh, and uh, of course my worst fear was confirmed that she probably should be put down Um, she had kidney disease and she had a big mass on her abdomen um, that they think was cancerous so I made the very hard decision to put her down. I drove home, grabbed the kids, went back. We spent the evening with her. And um, so Tuesday night we put her down and that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And I'm trying not to get emotional, but obviously I'm going to because I had her for almost 18 years. She went through a ton of shit with me like we had a special bond. She was she was definitely. I have 3 other animals. I have 2 other cats and a dog. I know. But she was definitely my favorite and this was definitely the hardest will be the hardest. Um I love my other animals, but she was like she was my fucking soul sister. <laughs> I loved that little fucking cat so much. Um, so, um, sorry, I, I made this really long. I didn't intend for it to be this long, but that is what happened this week. I've uh, The past three months, I've had uh, my grandma passed away. I had a very dear friend pass away and now my cat. So it's been very tough for me trying to keep it together. Uh but been very emotional. There's other things in my life going on too that have been very emotional, but trying to stay strong. Uh anyways. <laughs> um RIP Libby, I love you. You're the best cat. Uh let's move on before this drunken bitch gets too emotional. Uh speaking of drunken bitch, um, I'm drinking tonight a a Shiraz and it is called Dreamtime, Um, it's a 2014 Shiraz from Southeastern Australia which is very crazy because that's where my story, well it's not Southeastern Australia but my story is from Australia tonight. So i got a theme going on here. Um, So I'm drinking that. uh, Let's see. Uh, TV TV and movies. Um, I've been watching a lot of old classics on um, this IRC popcorn stream that we got going on. And it's been awesome. It's been keeping my mind off of things. And... It's been great. Um I also watched the Wu Tang uh saga uh drama series that's on Hulu, which is really good. Um it is not a documentary, but it is it's loosely based on Wu Tang and um you know, some of the the story is embellished a little bit and um but it's you know, still pretty factual. Uh, But it's really good. So I'm all caught up with that. I think season two, three or four episodes into season two. Um, So now I just wait for the other episodes to get released. Hate that, though. Um, Other than that, uh, nothing really, uh, as far as TV and movies go, that I that I that are worth mentioning, maybe um the movie Casino I guess is one that I've watched recently. That's kind of a true crime ish, mafia ish, um, but it's a long ass movie. But I watched it the other night and it's really good. It's from like the nineties and I hadn't watched it in a really long time, um, but. That's all I think I have for TVs and movies. Uh, TV and movies. Um, Guys, I am like one and a half sheets, maybe two sheets, possibly three sheets to the window already. So (laughs) don't mind me. Um, That being said, I suppose we can move into the story tonight. Um, Like I said, it's. It's from Australia. So this is an important but not a very well-known case. Um, like I said, it takes place in Australia. And it had been a cold case for over 20 years. And uh, last year, um, so about a year ago, uh, it turned into not a cold case. So it's no longer a cold case. Um 20 fucking years, though, it took, Uh, but I love, I absolutely love when cold case files get solved, like, there's nothing worse, well, I'm sure there's a lot worse, but hyperbole here, Um, when, like, I like cold cases, but they leave so many questions, and it's like, this shit isn't Solved, somebody is out there still either committing crimes or having committed a crime and not paying for it, just living their fucking life. Uh, while these people or persons that they killed are, you know, like have no, there's no justice for the families or anything. So, after 20 years, this is finally not a cold case. Um, This takes place in Perth, Australia. Um, It's like kind of like their Golden State Killer or their BTK. It just changed the whole area and how people live their lives and raised their kids. And it shook everyone to their cores. Um, So this one is called the Claremont Serial Killer. So, Perth is the capital of Western Australia with a population of almost 2 million people. And it is the most isolated city in the world. It's teeny tiny, but it is the most isolated city in the world. Uh, The Indian Ocean is on one side. On the left side, what do we call that? We call that the West. (laughs) Uh, Indian Ocean on the West and then the Australian outback on the east side. Um, so Google Maps, uh, if you like, type this shit. Type Perth, Australia into Google Maps, and zoom out. It's, um, it's from like, uh, Los Angeles to Houston is like, um, like to get to Adelaide, which is the next big city, Houston. Uh, Los Angeles to Houston, it's like a 30 hour drive. So that's how isolated it is. And um, it's sister cities actually are Houston and San Diego. Uh, It's a beautiful place with some of the most expensive houses in Australia. And I think it's kind of like a secret famous person place to go because Australians don't give a shit if you're famous they're like oh there's a famous person who cares like like australians they'll even if you're a famous person they'll tell you to throw a shrimp on the barbie right to your face uh they don't give a shit they're very casual people as a nation so um perth is super isolated and Claremont is a suburb of Perth, and it's located on the north bank of the Swan River. It's really charming and upscale, and the main district of Claremont is known as an affluent local hub. So it has a bunch of like cute uh, boutiques and restaurants and pubs and bars, and it's like a young nightlife scene. But it's upscale, so it's kind of like a lovely little place. It's safe. It's a close-knit community. Um, uh, Australian reporter Alison Fan describes it as the heart of the gold triangle of western suburbs. Uh, basically, it's the kind of place where um, you don't expect anything bad to happen, of course. um. But that is until the mid-90s, uh, within a span of 15 months, when three women mysteriously disappear right off of the street. So the case began with the disappearance of Sarah Spears, 18 years old. She had moved to Perth after finishing high school nearby. And. And she goes to secretarial school, she gets a job as a receptionist, Uh, she's lovely, she makes friends easily, she's close with her family, she's responsible, she's very uh, uh, comfortable with her new city life, and she lives with her sister. Um, so on January twenty-seventh, nineteen ninety-six, she is out with her friends visiting the clubs after uh and after she leaves uh club Bayview in the center of Claremont around 2 a.m. by herself. Um she calls a taxi uh at about 206, she calls a taxi from a public telephone booth. And uh, there's actually a recording of her making that call. And she is seen waiting alone by three eyewitnesses who also mention seeing an unidentified car stopping where she's waiting. And when the taxi arrives at 2.09 a.m., she is gone. So just within that three minutes, she's gone. So, by the next day, her disappearance automatically alarms friends and family who know that she's responsible and reliable and like just wouldn't take off. So, even though there's usually like a waiting period for missing people uh to be taken seriously, her friends and family kind of made um uh kind of made it like happen sooner because they were so freaked out. And there's a massive public attention immediately and her friends hand out missing posters all over Claremont and it becomes a major investigation because of her family and friends which is awesome and they pass out 20,000 flyers uh, there's 2,000 posters all over Perth 50 buses have her face uh, her picture on them like you could not go anywhere and not see her face. So people knew about it immediately. And a task force is set up within 48 hours to look into her case. But there's really no evidence at all. Like no one saw her disappear. So the trail goes cold, of course. Um, so then we get to June. June 6th, 1996. Uh, 23 year old Jane Rimmer, uh, is with friends for a night out in Claremont, the same area that Sarah was in. Uh, she is described as a bubbly, uh, and fun, uh, funny person. She's really genuine and, um, she's really easy to get along with. And all of the pictures of these women, like you would be friends with all of them, um, they're just—they just seem like really cool, down-to-earth women that you would get along with because they're awesome. Um, so she's a live-in nanny, and the two children uh, she nannies for adore her. Um, she's actually friends with the mother, even though there's a big age difference. Um, She's just really easy to get along with. And uh, Jane and the mother even discussed the disappearance of Sarah Spears just a couple nights before her disappearance. Um, So Jane's friends tell the police that they had hit a couple of different night spots, including Club Bayview, where Sarah had last hung out. And there's a long line at one of the clubs. So Jane's friends decide to take a taxi home. They just, they don't want to wait to get in. Fuck it. They want to go home. Uh, But Jane decides to stay behind. So CCTV had been installed in Claremont after Sarah disappeared. And it actually caught footage of Jane standing outside of this club called uh, The Continental at 12.04 a.m and it's like busy there's people hanging out outside and smoking and it's lively like it's not like it's a desolate area um she seems like she's waiting for someone like maybe a taxi probably a taxi she's leaning on a pole she's laughing um and then the camera Uh, actually catches her talking to an unknown man and she's just laughing with him and then it pans away and when it pans back she is fucking gone Um, so 55 days later and actually um, uh, sorry that CCTV footage isn't released actually until 2008 Uh, this is What did I say? 1996 that this happens and it's not released until 2008 because they wanted to keep um, I don't know. They wanted to keep things under wraps, I guess. Uh, They had sent it to NASA to try to get more information and they couldn't. And they just kept it under wraps, which is weird. Fifth. So 55 days later, on August 3rd, a family is out for the day in the bushland of Wellard, which is about 25 miles south of Claremont. Uh, So the mother's looking at these death lilies, is what they're called, um, and she sees the biggest one that she's ever seen. So she kind of walks through the uh, brush to look at it, and she feels something brushing the back of her leg. And she turns to see what she was feeling. And she sees a tiny foot sticking out from some of the brush. And uh, she looks and it was the naked body of Jane hidden under some brush. What are the fucking odds? Um, So her remains were too decomposed to show a cause of death. But an autopsy shows that um, she has a prominent injury on her neck that is consistent with a knife wound. So um, the same day uh, on a road like less than a mile from where Jane's body was found, the investigators find a pocket knife and it had a telecom logo on it. Um, So telecom... Uh, it turns into this company called Telstra. So that's what I'm going to call it from now on. Uh, Telstra is Australia's largest telecommunications company. They basically are like AT&T or Verizon here in the United States. they have got phone lines, internet, whatever. So the knife was issued as standard equipment to Telstra workers. Um, but what the fuck is it doing in the middle of nowhere? So, several witnesses that live in the area tell detectives that they heard a woman screaming and shouting the night that Jane went missing. And one man says he heard a woman screaming, leave me alone, let me out of here. And he, then he sees a car drive away in the direction of the spot where Jane's body was found. Um, and then another couple closer to the crime scene, uh, they remember... Hearing blood curdling cries that like stopped mid scream. Like, do you call the police at that moment? Um, no one called it in. Um, I don't know what I would do. I don't want to be an alarmist, I don't want to call the police for something that is not a big deal. Um, but shit, I guess. It doesn't hurt to get shit checked out. Like, uh, I mean, it it turns out on the night that Sarah Spears had gone missing, witnesses also heard blood-curdling screams less than five miles away um, in the Mossman Park area between 2.30 a.m. and 3 a.m., which were consistent with a female in distress. Um, It's a tough call. You know, you don't want to... Involve yourself in people's business. You don't want to. Uh, be nosy. It's a hard. Decision to call. The cops. Um, but. Uh, so. Remember Sarah's body. Has not been found. Uh, so. she, Sarah was the first one. Jane was the second. But. It was in that area uh, that she was, you know, Jane and Sarah were taken from the same area. So one of the witnesses who heard the screams uh, said when they looked in the direction of the screams, they saw a white or cream colored car that was parked on the wrong side, which in America is the right side of the street because we drive on the right side of the street. So, uh, but in Australia, it was parked on the wrong side. Uh, And the screams were heard only about 20 minutes after Sarah was last spotted outside the club, seemingly waiting for a taxi. Um, So after Jane Rimmer's body is found, the uh, Western Australian police launch what's called the Macro Task Force to investigate the disappearance of both Jane and Sarah. And there's massive publicity in this city where women are normally relatively safe. And then I was thinking about, like, why? Like, don't leave a bar alone. But it seems like it was a bustling area that, uh, that they were in. And, like, they walked home probably a million fucking times. Shit, when I lived in Chicago, I'd walk home from the train all the time at, like, 3 or 4 a.m., and it was probably three, four blocks at least, almost every night. And sometimes uh, I was not living in great areas, but I did it anyways. Like, it was not a big deal to me. Um, Granted, I carried mace and shit, but... um, this place, Claremont, was like pretty safe. And the thing that upsets me is people disappearing when people are around. other people were around. like it wasn't it I mean, it's very scary. Um, that to me means that they were targeted. And the person who took them like has no fear and definitely has a plan. Um, so then nine months later, um, in the early hours of March 15th, 1997, Sierra Glennon, a 27-year-old from Mussman Park, also disappears from the Claremont area. Um, Sierra was a lawyer and splo- nope. spoke fluent Japanese. So she was very smart. Um, she had come home to Perth after a year of backpacking overseas. And she came back to be a bridesmaid in her sister's wedding. That was happening uh, in a week. And um, to return to her job at a law firm. And like Sarah and Jane... She is out with friends and heading to the Continental Nightclub when she decides to make her way home. She'd had enough. She's like, fuck it, I want to go home. Um, she kind of hadn't wanted to go out that night, but she did anyways. So she leaves her friends early. Um, there is three men at a bus stop and they see Sierra walking south along Sterling Highway at around 12:30 a.m. and i don't think this is like a desolate highway just kind of like a main street kind of so they see her interacting with someone in a light colored vehicle that had stopped for her um and then she disappeared um So, those witnesses, they become known as the Burger Boys. Um, It's these three dudes, Troy Bond, Frank McElroy, and Brandon Gray. They're sitting together at a bus stop eating burgers, and they had noticed a newer model Holden Commodore station wagon, which looks like. Uh, like an 80s Volvo or Honda, sta- Honda station wagon type of thing, um, they see it pull up alongside a woman. They see her talking to the driver um, through the window, but they didn't continue to watch to see if she got in. But another witness does say that they saw her get in. So she's described as a strong in spirit and courageous, and um, her father tells reporters that his daughter is a fighter and she's going to fight whoever took her. But sadly, 19 days later, on April 3rd, her semi-clothed body is found by a bushwalker who's out looking for marijuana. And she had been discarded about 25 miles north of Claremont. And the cause of death is noted as being consistent with neck injury. Um, We later find out that it looks like the knife, it looks like knife wounds to the neck, which is the same MO as Jane, whose body was also found. And they're also placed in the exact same way. Um, except they're mirror images with like their arm up and, you know, mirror images. Um, during the autopsy, it's discovered that Sierra had indeed fought back. And in fact, she fought her killer so hard that one of her thumbnails is partially torn off. And she has her attacker's DNA under her fingernails. Nice. Love hearing that. But of course, it's too early. It's 97. There's no real testing on DNA at this point. Um, but it's something. So after the disappearance of Jane Rimmer, uh, the Western Australia police had set up the macro test force. And um, to look into the two similar cases, they kind of knew automatically like that they were related. So when Sierra disappears, um, police confirm that they are searching for a serial killer and the Western Australian government offers a $250,000 reward, which is the largest ever offered in the state at the time. Um, They say the serial killer has a preferred victim profile young woman between 18 and 27 years of age with a small build, fair complexion, intoxicated and alone. And it does seem that they uh like I don't know if all of them, but some witnesses said that they they did seem intoxicated, which is just like they're so targeted at that point. It's just so awful. Um, And this case becomes fucking huge. It grabs a ton of public attention. And it's basically like uh, Ted Bundy level attention after the um, Florida Chi Omega murders. murders. (laughs) The whole town is fucking terrified. Um, Or like BTK. Basically, that someone among us in our small community is committing these horrendous acts and people are terrified um so detective inspector paul ferguson leads the inquiry and he has more than a hundred investigators on the case and there are several leads but the strongest is the cctv footage of jane rimmer and the unidentified man so it is sent to nasa um And, you know, there's nothing they can, like, they can't enhance it in any way. Um, But it's released in 2008 because police feared that releasing it any earlier would have hindered the investigation. But it's like, maybe someone would recognize how that person is standing or walking. Like, you just never fucking know. And it makes me think... That when it happens in a place where it never happens, like when it happens in a place where they say it could never happen here, the investigation, uh, like unless they call people in right away, which people are learning to do now. But oftentimes it's it's that decision making like they've been criticized a lot about the investigation and it's partly because they kept so much secret And um, they kept so much to themselves that people didn't think they were actually doing anything. And in some cases, um, maybe they weren't following through as well as they should have. And maybe the public's help would have done something. But in others, it's just, you know, they were keeping, really just keeping it under wraps. And, um... The man in the video is never identified, uh, no evidence found uh, to link him, and police also use a woman to reenact Sierra Glennon's night. So they basically dress her in exactly what she's wearing, um, a woman who looks like her. They have her walk in the same path and go in the same bars, but nothing pans out. Um, and the initial focus of the investigation centers on the uh, unidentified uh, vehicle seen in the two locations. And also, um, basically, I think what we're all thinking is taxi drivers. Like, it's got to be some taxi driver, some fake taxi. You know, I think um, everyone thought that. Uh, like an independent some kind of independent cab thing like in fucking New York City there's a million of them like you fucking wave your arm out in the middle of the street and you get in whatever car stops for you like you just want to get inside to get up the street Um, so these girls they're 10 minutes away from home they're intoxicated everyone gets in a taxi it's normal it's the safe thing to do is to get in a taxi it's a smart choice to make right um, also it's the idea of somebody sitting in a car with some kind of like dispatch radio or some kind of thing where if they hear if the call goes out like they show up like they're there um, so taxi drivers of course um, so Thousands of taxi drivers licensed in Western Australia are fingerprinted and DNA tested, which was really expensive at the time. So the investigators were criticized for that as well, of course. Um, They find 78 drivers with significant criminal histories. And because of this, uh, it doesn't lead them to the killer. But the standards for eligibility for taxi drivers are raised. Good. Great. Um, and the 78 drivers are delicensed, and then there are uh, um, stricter standards that are applied to verify that decommissioned taxis are properly stripped of official insignia and equipment. Um, What we should be saying, though, about and whoever is in charge, because it might not be the police, but the fact that the one young woman went missing and they put up a CCTV camera the next day, the next day, that is how things should work, you know what I mean? Uh, if something happens and while they're doing all this other stuff, um, now what would have been different to make this better and not so terrible? Cameras. And then just getting it done, that's impressive. Uh, That they did it so quickly and then they did this investigation all while they were like, at least they had something uh, going on that was positive and getting the DNA tested, even though it's expensive as fuck. And it's not normal at the time. They still did it in case in the future something was able to match it. So, though the murders had stopped at this point, over the years the MACRO task force is met with both praise and criticism for its handling of the case. Uh, A lot of information is suppressed from the public, as I mentioned before. Um, So, one of the controversial tactics that MACRO used was sending questionnaires to over 110 persons of interest that included questions like, are you the killer? So yeah, they also relied heavily on international experts. Uh, They had a lie detector machine imported from another country and um, this might be the most controversial of them all. Uh, One task force officer accepted an offer from convicted serial killer David Burney to assist in the invest investigation. So David Burney, he's from Perth uh, as well. He was responsible for the Morehouse murders, which is a future episode that I probably will do. I say that. I feel like I say that all the time. Um, he, him and his wife... Uh, they were kidnapping women and burying them. It's a really dark one, real dark one. So they went to this monster in the same way where Ted Bundy was like offering to help them solve shit. And you're like, sit down, motherfucker. And what can they offer? Like, what can he offer to help? Thoughts? thoughts and feelings like they have nothing to do in jail Um, unless they know the person or they know the area that would be a different thing but he's just like here's my theories here's how this person probably works here's what his mind is like here's what kind of person he is if they already have a profile of this person then they don't really need that guy Right? Um, they have actually professional people doing it and not a fucking serial killer. Like, this isn't Silence of the Lambs. You are not Hannibal Lecter, who was an expert actually, before he did all, the, all of his shit. Um, so, due to the nature of the killings, experts suggest that Claremont Killer was probably a single white male between 25 and 35 Lived in the area, uh, appeared trustworthy, organized, social, and probably well-educated. And Detective Dan Capworn replaces Ferguson as the case leader. And he finds the first suspect in the killings, a man named Lance Williams. So Lance Williams is a 41-year-old public servant. He lives with his parents um, at... Someplace I I don't remember the name, but um, it's close to the hotel where both Spears and Rimmer had spent some of their evening on the night that they disappeared. But it seems like his biggest fault is he seems to become obsessed with the case. So um, it's that's always a red fucking flag. Like he even occasionally drives around Claremont late at night to conduct his own mini-investigation into the murders. Uh, so he says, and he even offers women rides home. He says because he's worried about their, uh, he, he's worried about them. Hmm. Sure. So one time he circles the area more than 30 times, and of course it raises red flags for the investigators, and they have a young female officer dress up for a night out and act as bait. And he does offer the undercover officer a ride and he is immediately arrested. So on February 5th, 1998, he's questioned for like 12 or 17 hours or some shit and then released. And he remains the chief suspect for the next decade, 10 years, and is placed under intense scrutiny with the police. They openly follow him to and from work every day for years. His family home is raided a few times. They have listening devices that are installed in his office. Um, one of which once crashed through the ceiling onto his desk. Whoops. Uh, like it was too heavy and just fell through the ceiling onto his desk. Um, and But he maintains his innocence. And during the six different interviews he has with the police, um, Uh, the public, like, eventually finds out his identity, so they also fucking go after him as well, of course. And the thing is, he wasn't lying. He was obsessed with the case, and he did want to make sure that the women got home safe. And he's finally declared no longer a person of interest in 2009. He didn't fucking do it. He's a weirdo, but he didn't do it. We're all weirdos like he is, right? Every single one of you listening to this is a weirdo just like he is, especially me. I won't deny it. Uh, so, Detective Caphorn is uh, criticized um, as having had tunnel vision when it comes to him being a suspect and just focusing on him. And Lance Williams actually or Lance William actually dies in 2018 of cancer at 61 years old. Um, So, well, it turns out that the reason Lance was no longer a person of interest in 2009 is because that year forensic scientists are finally able to properly test the DNA that had been found under uh, Sierra Glennon's fingernails and they recover an unknown male's DNA profile and they went through so much um they don't get into about like how they were able to extract the DNA um but uh there's incredible scientists who painstakingly fucking made sure that they 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 really wanted to solve this case so When they compare that DNA to the DNA of other sexual assault cases in the area, they match another unknown male's DNA from an unsolved abduction and rape that had occurred in 1995. So the year before the string of murders began. Um, So in that case, a 17-year-old girl is walking home after a night out in the same Claremont venue. Where Sarah Spears would have um, later, uh, a year later, would be, you know, disappeared from. And she had been grabbed from behind. Um, She was bound and gagged and put into a van and she was driven to a cemetery. She's fucking dragged through the dark. She's raped twice. Brutal rape. And the whole time she's thinking she's going to die. Um, She purposely doesn't look at him in the face thinking like maybe that will give her a chance to live if she doesn't see his face. And amazingly, he leaves her alive, but obviously very fucking wounded. It's so awful. So she survives the assault. Um, She goes to a nearby hospital where her rapist DNA is recovered And they're also able to find fibers from this case that are also on Jane and Sierra, which are microscopic blue polyester fibers, uh, as well as fibers that match what could have been a Holden Commodore station wagon. But again, it doesn't lead to a suspect. So they have a way to match all these cases, and maybe they'll get it. Um... Or they have more information, but they still don't have the person. It's still all unknown male DNA. So it does not lead to a suspect, nor does a report from the security guard who saw a Telstra van leaving the area when the 17-year-old girl had been raped around 4 a.m. Detectives do a... um, They request a list of Telstra employees... Um, so remember that the knife—that's a big knife—that's a big knife—is that good? Um, the knife that was found at the crime scene. Uh, so they—it <clears throat> was a Telstra knife, and so they request a list of employees who were assigned vans, but that doesn't lead them anywhere either. So they check it, they can't find anyone of interest. So years go by until investigators decide to um, go through old evidence boxes from other similar crimes in the nearby area and they test those for DNA. So that leads to an evidence box that had just been hanging out from an unsolved 1988 Huntingdale sexual assault case. So in 1988, there's a series of prowler incidents in the Huntingdale area, which uh, is about 30 minutes from Claremont, and they were dubbed the Huntingdale Prowler. Um, So there are reports of women's intimates being stolen from clotheslines, as well as a uh, peeping tom. And someone trying to break into houses. So residents claim to have seen a figure wearing 90s, like women's 90s, dressing gowns. And uh, on one occasion, a pair of women's underpants over his head. Um, So, you know, it's kind of like the Golden State Killer where he's just like he steals it and then he puts it on in some way. And it seems like he wants people to see him in it, almost. Um, So in February of 1988, an unidentified man breaks into a home and attempts to sexually assault a sleeping 18-year-old girl. Um, But she is able to fight him off. And uh, that attacker runs off uh, and he leaves behind... um, uh, he had been wearing a silk kimono that seems like he had taken off of a clothesline and that is left behind and that has a semen stain on it. So in that evidence box, they find that uh, it sits in the evidence box for 28 years until finally they're able to test the DNA on it and it matches the other unknown DNA from all all those other cases, but still they don't know who the Huntingdale Prowler was. So they still have, um, just a connection with all the cases, but no identity of a killer. But man, so insane. This net is widening of what this guy's been doing and where he's been doing it. It's horrifying It's got to feel like you're so close. You are so close. And then you find one more case that matches and you're like, it's just got to be frustrating. So what finally ties it all together and what leads to tying it all together isn't DNA, but fingerprints. Uh, So during a separate Huntingdale uh, Prowler uh, break-in The attacker had left behind his fingerprints and palm prints on a sliding door. And those prints are finally run through the system when they're uh, looking through old evidence boxes and a match is found. So it's found to this case where there's a known attacker. Um, In a a recent uh, interview with 60 Minutes, A woman named Wendy Davis, Um, she's now in her 70s, she was a mother of three and a social worker in 1990, and she, oh my god, it's just such a heart-wrenching, moving interview. This woman is incredible. Um... She was a social worker working at her desk at Hollywood Hospital about 30 minutes from Huntingdale in 1990 when a man comes in her office and asks if he can use the restroom that's right by her desk. And she glances at him and she like waves him into the bathroom like, go ahead, not thinking much of it since, um, you know, the man's wearing a uniform of the uh, telecommunications company, that is working on the hospital's phone lines that week. So she allows him to go to the bathroom without much thought. But um, pretty quickly, he comes out, grabs her from behind, puts a rag over her mouth, and fucking yanks her out of her chair and starts pulling her into the bathroom. And she's like, I don't want to die. Like, freaks out. I don't want to die. So she starts fucking fighting back. I mean, she tells this whole story in the 60 minutes and I I think it's an Australian one so you probably have to find it online, but she starts kicking and fighting. She's able to turn herself around and starts fucking wheeling on his shins with her fucking high heels. And so he stops and he says just as suddenly Uh, or she says just as suddenly as the attack started, it stops. And she says the man seems to come like out of a trance almost and starts to apologize. And like, um, like he was just in a trance, like, I don't know. Um, so he's held down until the police arrive and, um, on him, they find cable ties in his pocket. Um, and this man is a 21 year old Telstra em- employee named Bradley Robert Edwards. And somehow he is only charged with common assault. What the fuck? Um, and, and they, as, uh, they say in the 60 minutes that you can get a charge of common assault by like yelling a curse word across the street at someone. Um, And they don't acknowledge the sexual motivation of the attack. It's not attempted rape or attempted kidnapping or, you know, her free will being attacked. It's none of that. Um, And he only gets two years probation. He doesn't even get fired from his fucking job at Telstra. Despite attacking a woman on the job, he doesn't get fired um, on the job. Uh, instead, a supervisor goes to speak with the victim and tries to assure her that Edwards is a good kid who's just under a ton of stress. Like, ew, no, no, not okay. Uh, finally though, this leads to the killer. And in December uh, 2016, the prints from the Huntingdale Prowler incident are tested and they match the prints to the Hollywood Hospital case um, and they belong to Bradley Robert Edwards. So they finally have a suspect but they still need his DNA to match the DNA of the unknown killer. So, alright, who is this asshole? Well, it turns out that he still is working for Telstra. Um, he had enjoyed a good career, pay raises, um, you know, all the shit, moved up in ranks with the company. He's 46 years old. He's tall and, um, and like a large, well-built man with dark hair. Um, he looks like a normal dad. And this fucking piece of shit. Um, he's got like cropped hair, clean cut polo shirts. You would not think twice cause he's hiding in plain sight. Um, like he's a totally unassuming dude. They don't look like monsters. You guys, the monsters don't look like monsters. That's how it always goes. Um, he had been married twice. He has a stepdaughter, um, and although he and his second wife were having issues, um, they were having issues, whatever. That's as far as that goes. Um, <clears throat> so on the weekends, for years, he had worked for like athletic clubs, um, the Belmont Little Athletic Clubs for like kids playing sports. Um, he'd been on the committee as a records officer And by 2007, he had become the club's president. So he's not some creep in the shadows. Like, he's fucking out there living a stand-up life, um, John Wayne Gacy style. Um, There's even pictures of him in the newspaper, like, receiving an award. And it's more the usual unassuming, um, everyone couldn't believe it. Uh, He helped his neighbors with shit. You know, the usual. No one ever believes that this person could do it. So a surveillance operation begins. And within days, detectives uh, grab a Sprite bottle that Edwards had thrown away at the movie theater where he watched a movie with his stepdaughter. Mm -hmm. And uh, when the bottle's tested, it's a match. And so they finally... After 20 years, with all the evidence being tied together because the DNA found under Sierra Glennon's fingernails because she fucking fought back, it's all tied together, and the Claremont serial killer is finally caught. Uh, you know, you think about the common assault charge, um, doesn't get fired from his job. Maybe if things would have been different, some of these cases wouldn't have ever happened. Uh, if he had been treated like a sexual predator that he is, like if someone didn't go in and fight for his fucking right to assault women and because because he was stressed out that like that should just be ignored, hey, guess what? Sorry because I'm sure that person heartily regrets ever being involved in that, that supervisor. But that was a massive mistake built on misogyny. Um, a mistake built on nothing can happen to the boys and the girls just complain a lot and that's fucking bullshit and crazy. Um, That person should be, I mean, I can't imagine living with myself after that. Um, It's terrible. It's so sad. Um, Because in this interview, this woman feels all the guilt. The woman who was attacked was like, I should have done more, which is like, they didn't even take you seriously. You couldn't have done more. Like, you were the victim. You weren't supposed to be fighting for that or to solve the case or do it correctly. It wasn't her job. But on top of that, um, the fact that that happened to her and that she did survive and fought so hard is the reason they ultimately were able to find that guy and solve that case. She did more then she, like, she did everything. She is foundational. She is the fucking hero in her story. So when his home is uh, raided, police discover allegedly all kinds of, like, twisted stuff, uh, kind of like BTK, um, like, homemade sex toys, and women's underwear with holes cut out, um, violent erotica stories that are like about abduction and women in porn depicting um, rape and tortured, like just really sadistic stuff that this mild-mannered person, you wouldn't think um, like that they have it in their house. And when he's brought in for questioning... Um, again, mild-mannered. He's calm. He acts surprised and confused about being brought in, and he speaks openly uh, with the investigators for 12 hours. And he politely tells them repeatedly that uh, he has no knowledge of the killings and says he's 120% positive positive. That he had no involvement in the murders or the sexual assaults. Okay. Big red flag there. The phrasing of that. I'm 120% positive I'm not involved. Because there's a world where you could maybe not be sure. Like you either know you are or you or you're not involved at all. Like, there's no, um, like, the assuredness that I'm really sure I didn't do anything is basically giving away that um, you don't know, like, that your brain is a mystery to you and you don't know what's like, what you're doing. Because an innocent person would say... I didn't do that. Like, I am not the person who did that. I'm positive I'm not involved. Oh, okay. As opposed to what you're secretly keeping in your head, that you are absolutely involved. It's like giving the opposite answer to the secret in your head gives it away. If any of that makes sense to you guys. It made sense to me. Um... But finally, his DNA is tested and he's arrested for the murders of 27-year-old Sierra Glennon, 23-year-old Jane Rimmer, and 18-year-old Sarah Spears, as well as the 1988 Huntingdale sexual assault of the 18-year-old woman, um, woman. And by the way, uh, he lived in Huntingdale as a teenager when these prowling incident incidences were happening so that's the connection there and um the two counts of aggravated sexual penetration without consent of the 17 year old girl in the claremont cemetery in 1995 all of which he pleads innocent for okay Oh, shit, I forgot him Okay, so he's brought to trial three years later on November 25th, 2019. Um, the night before trial begins, he admits to um, and pleads guilty to both the sexual assault cases but not the murders. So he pleads innocent to the murders. He's like, Okay, I lied about being involved in the sexual assault cases Um, and essentially the defense comes down uh, to the argument that the DNA is contaminated which I think is why he must have pled guilty to the two assaults Um, so he could explain his DNA being in the lab and saying well You must have used that DNA and got it mixed up and contaminated with the DNA of the murders. Which is fucking smart. You know, because I'm just a rapist. I'm not a murderer. I, I just rape women. I don't murder them. So if you can't explain why your DNA is at any scene, then... It shouldn't be in the room at all. But if your DNA is supposed to be in the room because you are involved, motherfucker. So that is a cynical mercenary approach that sounds like it was um, that a bunch of people worked on that idea basically that strategy it's dirty you're admitting to something that is lending itself much more to the character argument um, that you're a bad fucking person a sociopath or whatever a psychopath Um, the idea that you're just like "It's, it's just those it's not this so maybe I'll get away with the other ones um, it's an angle, but I think it actually reveals much more about that person because Jesus fucking Christ. um, And it wasn't well thought out. Also, the MO fits all of them in some way or another. And also the fact that this 17-year-old girl got grabbed off the street and tied up and pulled into the van uh, makes everyone wonder. They didn't get, like, these women, they didn't get into a taxi or an unmarked car. Maybe one or all of them were attacked on the street and kidnapped, and that if he was such a great guy, a uh, sympathetic guy, a lovely, friendly guy that it would be very easy if he's wearing a uniform of this kind, of um, like well-known company. Um, he, he used the company car. He wore uh, his uniform. Other women said that they had seen him in the area and maybe he tried to pick them up at one time and they testified to that. And He's like at work, like, oh, I'm just going to this call for uh, this phone line. You want me to take you to the area? Yeah, I can take you. I'm just this business guy. Like I practically work for the city. It's like the Culligan Man or something, the Arrowhead Spring delivery guy where you're like, yes, this is the most trustworthy person because he makes up. A background player in a group of people, Uh, the phone line guy, and also the idea that he worked for that company. Um, Those knives were found at the scenes of some bodies. Um, The other stuff, I mean, you're in it, friend, essentially the uh the defense comes down to the argument that the dna is contaminated which is you know uh, the defense is able to show other instances of contamination in the case including several times when the dna of several scientists working on the case uh was found on samples so you know they do have a chance with uh that plea or that um that argument Uh, There's also one instance where the DNA of a victim of a totally unrelated crime had been contaminated with the sample of the Claremont killer, but it was all debunked on cross-examination, so I don't even know if it's true. Um, Then the fiber evidence also forms a significant part of the prosecution's case. So, remember the blue polyester fibers found on Jane Rimmer and uh, Sierra Glennon's bodies? So, uh, they match the uh, Telstra work pants that Edwards would have worn in the mid-90s, which were manufactured specifically for the company using a bespoke color called Telstra Navy. So, it all fucking ties back to Telstra. And uh, there was also fibers that matched the 1996 Holden Commodore that he had driven at the time. And you're like, that's crazy. Why didn't they look more into Telstra employees? Why didn't they do background checks on all of them? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, So investigators had asked for the names of Telstra workers who would have driven those cars. since there had been sightings of those cars and somehow his fucking name was left off of the list, quote unquote clerical error, maybe or some shit twice. So if they had seen his name, they would have seen that he had a common assault charge, not a sexually motivated charge, but maybe it would have shown some charge and, um, possibly they would have looked into it and maybe talked to the victim to see what what the real deal was but also maybe maybe he made it um, because clearly he got away with it for a long time so maybe he did something and he had access when they were putting these lists together Um, he had access and the ability to delete his own name off the list clearly his fucking supervisors were sympathetic Maybe he went to them and said, hey, I have this charge. That was nothing. It was years ago. It was nothing. Can you just take my name off the list? It's not me. Who the fuck knows? Um, And it's the thing about these people that uh, they're barely people because they're entirely dedicating, dedicated to creating a mask that you fall for and feel safe with. And yeah, they just manipulate everyone all the time so that they don't get caught. And that's the whole point of their life. Um, and also t- uh, Telstra had no record of the actual assault in their files that it had even ever happened. The assault um, to Wendy... In the hospital. Um, so there's um, at the trial, there's no jury. It's just going to be a judge uh, instead of a jury because of the massive public, like everyone knows everything about it. And um, there's also really gruesome details, and they just don't think a jury should see. So it's going to be decided upon by a judge. So, it's 85 days in the courtroom, and there's testimony for more than 200 witnesses, uh, 60,000 pages of DNA and fiber evidence, and 100 gigabytes of data, which in today's gigabytes, uh, I don't know what it is. Maybe a billion. Obviously, I'm joking. um. If you guys didn't catch that, uh, so it it started um, not last November, but the November before. So in two thousand nineteen, so they did it through COVID too. Um, they're just plowing through it, and finally on Thursday, September twenty fourth, twenty twenty. So almost a year ago, Justice. Uh, Stephen Hall delivers his verdict. So Bradley John Edwards, he's now 51, is found guilty of the murders of Jane Rimmer in 1996 and Sierra Glennon in 1997. And unfortunately, he says that though Edwards is likely the killer of Sarah Spears, he felt that he couldn't rule it beyond a reasonable doubt because her body had never been found. So there's no DNA evidence um even though the M- MO is identical. So he acquits Edwards on that count which is so disappointing. Um he, but he's just doing his job. Um you know obviously he wanted him to be found guilty as well, but it's just almost like he's being rewarded for hiding her body so well. And that's just how it is, but um, it's that thing of like, especially in a situation where if DNA is questionable in the first place, that guy has to be so meticulous about the rule of law and what exactly is required to get a gu- a guilty verdict. So he can't fuck around, uh, as much as he probably wanted to, um, I just wonder if there would be another trial case just with Sarah Spears based on the MO of the other cases that, you know, if it wasn't tried together, I mean, I would think they would need more evidence to tip it over, though, because the evidence that they have didn't do the job the first time around. Um, so that's hard, um, for the Spears family. That one is, is hard to take in. Um, so sentencing takes place on December 23rd. Um, finally after 24 years, it's it's Australia's longest running and most expensive criminal investigation and one that scarred the city of Perth. Um, and it, it finally came to a close after 24 years and there are people who think that there are more victims of Bradley John Edwards, uh, that are not yet known, which isn't surprising. Um, kind of the same way the Golden State killer just kind of stopped what he was doing. And then there were cases before, you know, the known ones, um, So after the verdict, Sierra Glennon's father, Dennis, said that he had made a graveside promise to his daughter to uh, pursue justice for her or die trying. And he said, quote, that promise, that commitment to Sierra has driven me unwaveringly and unapologetically And the family of Jane Rimmer released a statement saying they were pleased to finally have some answers about the abduction and horrendous murder of our beloved Jane. Uh, Jane had her whole life ahead of her and it almost uh, beyond comprehension that this could have ended in such a horrific, heinous circumstance. Um, Our family can now take some comfort today and the healing process can begin. But both families agree, however, that the ordeal won't be over until the Spears family has some closure, um, which is very sweet and um, supportive of them. Uh, Jane's sister, Lee, said, we got the result we wanted and now we just have to keep working for the Spears family and hope someone finds Sarah. And that is the story of the Claremont serial killer. It was a little bit of a long one tonight, but um, I believe that was the first one I did in a different country. Australia. You guys did it. Uh, Sick cunt. I had intended on using the word cunt in this, but it never made it in. But I just kind of slid it in right there. So... Uh, cunt is a term of endearment in Australia and I, I fucking love it and um, I wish it wasn't so offensive here in the United States because it's a great word yeah so that's the story and uh, if you guys have anything to say at all any stories, anything you want to email me about you can email me at ofmonstersandcrime at gmail.com Uh, If you'd like to support the podcast and would like to become a patron, uh, I've got a Patreon set up at www.patreon.com slash of monsters and crime. Thank you for tuning in this week. Until next time. Goodbye.